Okay. Um, we're reading from John chapter 17, verses 1 to 19. Jesus prays for his disciples. After Jesus had spoken these words, he looked up to heaven and said, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your Son, so that the Son may glorify you. Since you have given him authority over all people, to give eternal life to all whom you have given him. And this is eternal life, that they may know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. I glorified you on earth by finishing the work that you gave me to do. So now, Father, glorify me in your own presence, with the glory that I had in your presence before the world existed. I have made your name known to those whom you gave me from the world. They were yours, and you gave them to me, and they have kept your word. Now that they know everything you have given me is from you. For the words that you gave to me I have given to them, and they have received them and known in truth that I came from you, and they have believed that you sent me. I am asking on their behalf. I am not asking on behalf of the world, but on behalf of those whom you gave me, because they are yours. All mine are yours, and yours are mine, and I have been glorified in them. And now I am no longer in the world, but they are in the world, and I am coming to you. Holy Father, protect them in your name that you have given me, so that they may be one as we are one. While I was with them, I protected them in your name that you have given me. I guarded them, and not one of them was lost except the one destined to be lost, so that the scripture might be fulfilled. But now I am coming to you and I speak these things in the world so that they may have my joy made complete in themselves. I have given them your word, word, and the world has hated them because they do not belong to the world, just as I do not belong to the world. I am not asking you to take them out of the world, but I ask you to protect them from the evil one. They do not belong to the world, just as I do not belong to the world. Sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth. As you have sent me into the world, so I have sent them into the world. As for their sakes, I sanctify myself, so that they also may be sanctified in truth. Morning. It's uh, the first time I've been to Lum Baptist Church, but I didn't even know where it was until about a couple of months ago when I drove up from Clough Fold, having taken Sunday morning service there. But it is good to be with you. However, I have known about Lum Baptist Church for many, many years. Anybody remember a person called Barry Pettersson? You'd, oh, good. He will be pleased about that. Um, Barry uh, for those who don't know, Barry Pettersson was a member here before he went into the Baptist ministry and retired a few years ago. Um, I was um, responsible for Barry meeting his wife. I raised a blind date for him. And it was so successful, they've celebrated, I think, now 42 years of marriage. So uh, that's a great encouragement to us. And we were with Barry uh, last summer, and I said I was going to preach at Lum. And, uh, and I had a, a, an email from him uh, last night. I said, I'm going to be there. Anybody you want to be remembered to? And he said, well, you better not mention anybody uh, because I might miss somebody out. Uh, but he did want to be... Is, is somebody called Jim Tattersall? Where's Jim? You're Jim, are you? He said, he said his word was, you, know, you used to be a very nice chap until you became a respectable member of the 
pillar of the church. You know, and in other words, when you were a youth leader, you were wonderful, but when you became older, and I said, he sends his regards to you and, and to anybody else that remembers him. And if anybody wants to send their greetings back, write your name on a piece of paper with you, because I shall forget. But it is nice to be with you. Can I ask, please, that the penultimate reading page from the reading be put on the screen? If you, that, that's the... In a minute. That's the one, that's the one. Right, thanks very much. I'm very, very grateful for that. Does anybody remember... Oh, I said my name's Pat Ingle. I am uh, was a, a Baptist minister. Well, I still am a Baptist minister. Uh, and I moved up to Burnley uh, 12 months ago where my, my son and his family live. And it's a great joy for me to sort of come and be around uh, people like yourselves. Anybody remember the Johnny Cash song, A Boy Named Sue? Oh, good, you're all awake this morning. I am... So we get a lot of responses. You remember, the, the story for those who don't, because it is a few years ago now, the story is about a boy who unfortunately, when he was born, was named Sue. His father uh, deserted his mother, left his mother to, to bring up Sue on, on her own, and went off the big wide world. Of course, what happened when you christened a name like Sue, you get into trouble. And he spent most of his life fighting, you know, with other boys and people to protect himself. And he swore that if ever he met his dad, he would kill him. Uh, one day, he goes into a bar and he sees his dad. He says, I recognized him from a faded photograph that my mother had. And he walks up to his dad and says, my name is Sue. How do you do? You're going to die. Or something like that. And they then get into a fight. And the fight develops. They get to the point, you know, I've got to watch this microphone, I'll get to close this. If the fight develops, and uh, till eventually the, the, the father goes for his gun, and the boy beats him to it, and at that point they stop. And then the father says to him, I want to explain to you why you gave it that name. And this is what he says. This world is rough, and if a man's going to make it, he's got to be tough. I knew I wouldn't be there to help you along. So I gave you that name and I said goodbye. I knew you'd have to get tough or die. And that's that name that helped to make you strong. Now I could preach if I like on the sermon on the name of Jesus, but that's not what we're looking at this morning. But here was this boy who was sent out into the world unprotected. But that is something that never happens to a Christian. Looking this morning at John chapter 17... This great prayer of Jesus, it takes place somewhere between uh, the events of the Last Supper and his arrest in the garden. And in that prayer, John, uh, Jesus starts off by praying, first of all for himself, then for the disciples, then for those who uh, will come Christians through him. But we're going to look at this particular section, which is verses 13 to 19 this morning. And uh, Because what Jesus is concerned about is how his followers should continue his work. Because, you see, they were not of the world, but they were in the world. They were not of the world in the sense that they were typical of, of, the, stand, of the people who lived up to the standards of their society. But they were in the world to continue the mission of Jesus Christ. And although the verse numbers are not up there, I'm going to pick out four particular points. First of all, he's praying that they will have his joy. Second, they're praying that they will know God's protection. As thirdly, they're knowing that will be sanctified, i.e. set apart. And fourthly, that they will be sent. And I was interested in your introduction. And remind me afterwards uh, to say, say William Temple to me, will you? Afterwards, Tom. 
please. I've got a book you can have. So it's up to you. If you forget, you don't get it. Let's look, first of all, at that first part. And, and I'm actually quoting from the, the NIV, but you'll be able to see it up there. I'm coming to you now, but I say those things while I'm still in the world, so that they may have the full measure of my joy within them. Seeing his joy. It's an amazing thing when you think about it, that Jesus can refer to his own joy when he knows very well that he is shortly going to be facing a most appalling mental, physical, spiritual suffering. He's going to face the cross and all that it means is his body will be racked with pain. His mind will feel that it is deserted and he just has that empty feeling where he even feels that God has left him. And yet, at this particular point in time, when he knows what's going to happen to him, he talks about my joy. And he prays that that joy will be in his disciples. You see, when Jesus talks about joy, he's talking about something very deep within his soul that sustained him. And he knew very well that in this hostile world, the disciples were going to face a lot of hostility, a lot of problems, and they would need that same sustaining experience of Jesus. And they would need the same experience he had, the joy of the presence of God. You know, we very often got a very superficial idea of joy. Think of some of those people that have given us theoretically great joy. Think of, the, of, of some of the, the comedians and what sad lives that they lead. You know, you and I have probably laughed many times at people like Kenneth Williams or Tony Hancock. And yet they were very, very sad people. And yet they gave us joy. Then I compare, with, compare that with a, a, a woman I read about some years ago who lost her child. She was a Christian. And she suddenly come, she confronts God with this problem, this pain that she's got and prays about it and blames God, etc., etc. Then suddenly she says, as I was praying, I felt sort of a sense of joy bubbling up from within. That gradually grew more and more till I found myself not only weeping, but praising God at the same time. She discovered something of the joy of God in her heart, even in her pain. The joy and the pain and the sorrow went side by side. Richard Foster, an American writer and preacher, who said about this on one occasion, the Christian experience is like a deep, resonant joy that has been shaped and tempered by the fires of sorrow. Shaped and tempered by the fires of sorrow. You remember that joy is one of the fruits of the Spirit. And this particular experience, we can only find through God. It might be some here struggling um, because of some sorrow or some pain and need some kind of joy in their life. You know very well it's no point in saying to them, well, cheer up. That's what people say sometimes. Cheer up. No, we don't mean that. But sometimes we need that deep Assurance within. When my father died, uh, I was at that particular time minister of a very lively and very large church in Solihull. We had plenty of good music, and thanks for the worship group this morning, I really appreciated that. Good music, good singing. In fact, we used to attract people you know, into, into the church just for the worship alone. It was great, it was lively, it was happy, it was joyful. It was one of, almost one of those churches that get described as happy clappy. But when dad died, 
Uh, I, the church decided I could have the following Sunday off. The last place I wanted to be was in that church. Because somehow that, that joy that would be around me would seem artificial. And so I rang round one or two of the ministers in the area who I know were ministers of very traditional churches and found out one that was going to be there that particular night and my wife and I went along to worship with them. And I found the peace and the joy and the presence of God in that service and it really touched my soul. The joy was there, but that particular night I wanted something much deeper. I identify with David, the psalmist, when he sighs, when anxiety was great within me, your consolation brought joy to my soul. Your consolation brought joy to my soul. And when you discover what Jesus was going through as he utters this prayer, when he spoke of my joy, you realize that in any kind of crisis, you can find that joy yourself in your heart. Something that might make you smile. But you'll know the presence and the joy of Christ and you know what Jesus means. Sensing God's joy in your life. Secondly, safety in God's protection. Verse 15 says, My prayer is not that you take them out of the world, but you protect them from the evil one. Two men were going through the ruins of a fire in a hen hut in British Columbia. And as they were going through the ruins, they discovered in one corner uh, a hen. Uh, All feathers all burnt, obviously dead. And they went to move the dead body to put it somewhere safe. And as they moved the dead body, four little chicks came out running from underneath. And they realized that what had happened is the, the four little chicks had been protected by the mother hen. She had, in a sense, given her life for theirs. You know, I've, I've always valued that song, Living Under the Shadow of Your Wings. I presume you know it. Yeah, I've always, especially since we babysat one night for my brother's chickens. My brother had chickens, and he left us one night in sort of a charge of, of these chickens. He went out, and uh, our instructions were, I think there were about three or four uh, groups, and our instructions to make sure they went inside the coop as it got dark. Because uh, three of them were all right. The fourth one was a real problem. The fourth one, the little chicks and the hen were outside, within the, within the netting, within the fencing, but outside. And the mother hen had got the little chicks under her wings. And our job was to get those chicks out and into the, the coop so that they protected from the cold night. Have you ever tried to move, you know? Believe me, you need gloves. Yeah, every time we went near and we tried to move her, we got pecked. And in the end, we gave up and waited until he came home. You know, living under the shadow of your... You realize what that verse means. And appreciate how important that was to that hen. Jesus is praying for the Father's protection for these uh, disciples of his, for these followers, this little band of followers. And there were two areas in particular he needed to pray about. He needed to pray for protection and the society in which they live. Verse 14, it says, I have given them your word and the world has hated them for they're not of the world any more than I am of the world. Anybody see the films about the X-Men? Anyone? You did. Two? Right, I better explain what it is. 
The X-Men, basically, it's one of these scientific, uh, science fiction films based on American comics, and the, it's about some people who are mutants. They have mutated into a slightly different form, which meant they've got all kinds of gifts, odd things and powers, you know, like one man had grown wings and, and, and somebody else had got to, was able to freeze somebody. I mean, I mean, but the thing was, you see, basically, I only saw, it so happens that this last week, uh, I saw two of them, one on DVD and one was actually on, on, on the television. And it so happens that a lot of the plots seem to be around one central idea. That these mutants, of which there were a lot, were not wanted in the world because they were different. Because they were different, people were afraid of them, suspicious of them. And it's a story of how certain people try to destroy them. Hated because they were different. And this is what Jesus is saying about his disciples. They belonged to him, they did not belong to the world. Because Jesus didn't belong to the world either. And because they belonged to him, they were different and the world hated them. Where did we get this idea that being a Christian means you are being popular and you've got to be popular? Because Jesus said, if you're a true Christian, the world will hate you. In this age, we seem to have, have forgotten that we have been called to be different. Because we have this idea we've got to be the same as everybody else. We've got to live up to society's standards, not God's standards. And so often we're told to get up today, get modern, be with it, get a life. Forgetting where our standards are. And the same pressure was on the early Christians in New Testament times. The pressure to conform to the world in which they live. The same time that Paul wrote these words to the Corinthians. Do not conform any longer to the pattern of this world. But be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Do not conform, but be transformed. I was rather disturbed uh, lately to uh, hear that uh, a person who had been in leadership with me in one of my, my, my churches who'd been widowed, was now living with one of the young people, or being one of my young people, whom I baptised. And uh, when I commented that I wasn't happy about that, their comment was, well, all my other friends are all right, you seem to be the only one. I don't think they're altogether right. But what I found distressing, not was that they were doing it, but they were justifying it. That they were justifying it. Because everybody else does it. We need protection. God's protection in the society that we can live up to God's standards. And secondly, we need protection from the evil one. Verse 15, protect them from the evil one. Now, I don't know what you believe about Satan, but I know there was a time in my ministry when if you believed in the devil, you were a little bit odd. You know, it was sort of, that was passe, that was first century. You didn't interest in that. We didn't worry about that these days. Things have changed. Because although we don't believe necessarily in a God with, in a devil with horns and a tail and a trident, we have come to realize that there is in this world a real sense of the powers of evil. A friend of mine, a brother minister, uh, was one of those who would scoff and thought, you know, it was ridiculous, it was old fashioned and there was modern explanations. Until one night he was in the manse, and there was a furious knocking on the door, and he opened the door of the manse, and four young people were there. 
Two boys, two girls. And they were absolutely terrified out of their wits. They were really scared. And they came in and a jumble tried to explain what happened. Eventually I sat them down and got the story out of them. The four of them had been uh, sat uh, in a car in a particular street in the area, kissing and cuddling as teenagers do. You, you remember that from your teenage years. Some of you. When suddenly, a great sense of evil, a sort of, they just felt it. This sense of evil. So much so that it just frightened them. It was so touchable that they just felt it just, just really scared them. And they drove round to the manse and spoke to the minister. And he couldn't understand it. But the following day, he went to a meeting with some social workers. And uh, the social worker said, oh, Roger, don't you know? There's a coven of witches meet in that street. He doesn't scoff any longer. He began to realize that these evil powers are real. Jesus did not put in the Lord's Prayer, deliver us from evil for nothing. But I'm greatly encouraged by one minister who wrote, It is an uplifting thing to feel that God is the sentinel who stands over our lives to protect us and guard us from evil. God is a sentinel who looks over our lives to protect us and guard us from evil. Thirdly, set apart for service. Verse 17 says, sanctify them by the truth. Your word is truth. Yes, the word is sanctify is up there. To be sanctified means to set apart. Sometimes translated as to be made holy. Jesus is praying for his disciples that they will be set apart for God's special service. Holy, dedicated, completely committed to him. That's what Jesus is praying for. Peter, in his letter, talks about the Christians being a, a holy people. And this is what he means. They've been set apart. Just as he who called you is holy, so he says, so be holy in all you do. For it is written, be holy, for I am holy. And that's in his first letter, in the first chapter. In the second chapter, uh, he goes on and says, you are a holy nation, a people belonging to God. Anybody like this ice dancing thing that comes in on a Sunday night now I, I don't watch that I like the ballroom dancing but I'm not bothered about the ice dancing you know Torville and Dean you remember Torville and Dean in their, their gold medal winning uh, performance to, to Barnum uh, if you remember and, and when, they, when they did the training for Barnum they were greatly helped by Michael Crawford the actor stroke singer uh, stroke producer who at that time was actually producing uh, the musical Barnum on the London stage and, and he had given a lot of advice about sort of circus movements etc and he was there when they got their medal and he was talking afterwards and, and somebody said to him what do you think about these two and his response says totally committed and in love with everything that they do what a wonderful description of what Christians are supposed to be. That's what it means to be sanctified. Totally committed to what God calls us to do. And in love with his work. Jesus is praying for his disciples who have that kind of commitment. Set apart, their lives set apart. Torval and Dean had to set sections of their life apart in order to do what they need to do. We have been set apart. For God's service. 
When Pavarotti was a young man, he was introduced to the, uh, you know, Luciano Pavarotti, when he was young, introduced to the beauty of song by his father. And as he grew up, he trained singing, but he also became a music, uh, trained to be a music teacher as well. And as he's getting to that point where choices to be made, he went to his father and he said, Father, I want to ask you, shall I take up singing or shall I take up teaching music? And his father said to him, Luciano, no man can sit on two chairs because you will fall between the two and sit on neither. So I was at a football match yesterday and I'm pretty sure one of the supporters there needed two chairs, but that's a completely separate thing. And Luciano chose which chair to sit on. And the rest is history. He chose singing. You have a choice of chair. Which chair are you going to sit on? Are you going to sit on a chair that is sanctified, set apart by God for you? Or are you going to sit on a chair that has been prepared by the world? God chose it. God set you apart. And he calls you to obey and how? Because Jesus, first of all, sanctified himself. That he might sanctify us. Jesus committed himself to the cross. And what's more, it was for our sakes. For them I sanctify myself. That they too may be truly sanctified. For them. For you. For me. Fourthly, sent out into the world. I also like William Temple and note your beginning. I thought he's writing my sermon for me. Verse 18, as you sent me into the world, I have sent them into the world. Remember the final words of Jesus in Matthew's gospel? Go then into all the world and make disciples. This is the reason that these disciples had been set apart, sanctified. Because they were going to be the basis of the church who would carry forward the message of Jesus. These were the ones who would ensure that the death of Jesus was not a waste. There's an old legend that when Jesus ascended up to heaven, he met the angel Gabriel. And Gabriel asked him what he'd been doing, and he explained what he'd done with his life. And how at the end of his life, he'd, allowed, he'd left 11 men to continue his work, to tell his message. And Gabriel says to Jesus, but what if they don't do it? And Jesus says, I have chosen no other way. I have chosen no other way. Now I know that's legend. But it gives us a message. That Jesus has chosen us to continue his work. Years ago I heard a radio play. And it was a story about uh, the Russian Revolution, the White Russians and the Red Russians who were sort of fighting during that great period of, of 1917. And in this play, there's a young man is given the responsibility of taking a message, I think it was a White Russian party, to one of the other camps. And the young man turned to the leader and said, I will do it. Not because I trust you, but because you trust me. Indeed, a wonderful thing. To think that Jesus trusts you and me. Isn't it a terrible thing when we let him down? Coming back to Peter's letter, he said, You're a chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, 
A people belonging to God. Why? That you may declare the praises of him who called you out of darkness into his wonderful light. In other words, we have been set apart to tell the world about the light of his love. And Jesus is praying that his disciples will be that kind of people. Jesus told his disciples, and we read it through the scriptures, you are the light of the world. What a responsibility. What a responsibility. And as we come into our conclusion, there's one aspect of sanctification that we haven't touched on. Another meaning of that word is equipping the saints. Giving them the resources that they need to fulfill the work. One of the criticisms of the British army in Afghanistan and Iraq has been that they have not been properly equipped. That doesn't happen with Christians. Jesus equips us to the full. Prior to this prayer, Jesus has been teaching his disciples. And he promises that they will receive all that they need to do his work. He promises them the Holy Spirit. And when the Holy Spirit comes on the day of Pentecost, the adventure begins. We are not left to be God's people, to be Christ's followers unprotected, to be weak. God gives us his spirit too. So this is the prayer of Jesus for you and me. Though we will see his joy, that we will know his security, that we will be set apart for his service, and that we will be sent out to fulfill the work that he came to do. And I want to close with a blessing taken from the last part of the letter to the Hebrews. It's this. May the God of peace equip you with everything good for doing his will. And may he work in us what is pleasing to him. Through Jesus Christ, to whom be glory forever and ever. Amen.